These two objectives of realizing decarbonization, realize the carbon neutrality, and ensuring growth and market stability for the global south. I don't think these two uh, should be contradicting each other. We should find a path to realize those two legitimate and important goals. And these are the great responsibility for the leaders of the G7. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we look at the G7 to highlight the energy and climate issues on their agenda. In April, Japan hosted the G7 ministers meeting on climate, energy, and environment, held in advance of the next full G7 summit to be held in just a few days on May 19th through 21st in Hiroshima. My colleague Jane Nakano sat down with Tatsuya Terazawa, chairman and CEO of the Institute of Energy Economics Japan, IEEJ. Jane and Mr. Terazawa walk through some of the key issues addressed by the minister at last month's meeting, including what the communique says on energy security and climate action. And they also look at what some of the priorities were for Japan going into the meetings and for the upcoming summit, and what climate and energy issues are likely to be highlighted when the G7 ministers meet in Hiroshima later this week. Here's Jane now to lead the discussion. It's really great to have you, Terezawa-san, join our uh, podcast. You know, this is a really interesting and also important year for Japan, as Japan is the president of the G7. It was about a little over a year ago when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, and it really affected the global uh, energy market uh, and very much reminded many of us how important energy security is. It's not to say that uh, other issues and priorities are less important, but I think in many ways uh, we had become so accustomed to having supply security uh, for many of these resources that run our economy. So I wanted to really, you know, start with this question of, you know, how then, you know, the notion of energy security figured when uh, ministers met in Sapporo in April. Uh, under the, the climate, energy, and environment ministers meeting under G7? Well, certainly the ministers touched upon the issue of energy security. And we can find a reference made to energy security mainly in the three parts. The first part relates to natural gas and LNG. And this is obvious because of the uh, Russian invasion to Ukraine. Natural gas and LNG was the most affected sector. And the communique uh, recognized the need to coordinate plans to mitigate risks associated with unpredictability of Russia's exports of gas. And the communique also stressed the need to continue monitor the situation. And additionally, the community acknowledged the role of investment in the gas sector, I think, which was very significant. The second area uh, relates to uh, clean energy uh, supply chains and the critical minerals. The communique uh, stresses the importance uh, to enhance the resilience of the clean energy supply chains and also uh, stresses the importance to diversify the sources of supply for critical minerals. The third part uh, relates to nuclear. The communique points out uh, the role that nuclear can play to enhance energy security. So 
as I said, energy security is being uh, highlighted in the uh, communique, but my overall impression is that compared with the very strong sense of urgency that the ministers are expressing uh, concerning the global warming, the reference or the highlighting of energy security is relatively modest. That is my impression. You just mentioned sort of geopolitics, uh, you know, this, you know, how uh, European nations are really trying to address their over-dependence on Russia, especially on gas, uh, is really an important context. But I think when, in, you know, also in the context of energy transition, you know, the, the critical mineral supply chains is another one where geopolitics sort of intersects. How would you sort of uh, you know, assess the, you know, how geopolitics became part of this energy minister's meeting? Well, geopolitics certainly is, is a major part uh, when we talk about uh, energy security. And uh, the communique starts with the condemnation of Russia's invasion to Ukraine. That's the first long paragraph of this uh, communique. So geopolitics is certainly a major part. But um, looking at the whole 36-page long uh, communique, I don't find too many references made to geopolitics with the possible expression, exception of the part uh, related to the clean energy uh, supply chain and also the critical minerals. And also uh, references made in the part of natural gas and LNG. It is natural to see Russia being mentioned um, in the natural gas and LNG. And as is described, the unpredictability of a Russian export of gas is the major reason why uh, the communique is stressing that the G7 members should coordinate their plans to mitigate the risks. And uh, the emerging new energy security issue is the clean energy supply chain and critical minerals. And um, without naming any country, the communique is stressing that we should not have an over-dependence on a limited number of suppliers to enhance the security of critical minerals and other clean energy technologies. And clearly, uh, geopolitics is behind uh, this point. You mentioned natural gas and you know, some, some of the other sort of focus of the communique, but could you tell us a little more about, you know, perhaps what are some of the priorities that different countries had as they met in uh, Sapporo to talk about sort of the, this dual challenge of pursuing you know, uh, decommunization while also ensuring uh, energy security? Well, I've thought about that uh, point, um, uh, reading through the 36-page long communique. And as I said at the beginning, the reference made to energy security is much less than the uh, strong sense of urgency uh, expressed towards uh, the global warming. And uh, it appears to be that many members of the G7 have considered that uh, the answer to energy security is through uh, accelerating uh, the energy transition, in particular, deploying more renewable energies. And it appears that those countries believe that by making the energy transition, deploying more renewable energies and decarbonizing their energy sector, this will automatically enhance energy security and reduce dependence on Russian energies. So it appears that those countries do not see a specific reason 
to highlight energy security separately. I think those people believe, or those countries believe, that uh, the energy transition would resolve the energy security issue, so it will come as a result of the energy transition. On the other hand, Japan has a very strong view about energy security. Japan has always attached great importance to energy security. Japan has always considered that energy security deserves a very separate and special uh, focus. And probably the biggest difference between those countries and Japan is that Japan believes that when we talk about energy security, energy transition and decarbonization is certainly important in the long term. But in the long transition period, uh, fossil fuel, especially natural gas energy, will continue to play a major role. And when we talk about energy security, Japan believes that we have to talk about the security of natural gas energy. And I think that is the reason that Japan pushed for stronger language in the natural gas and LNG. And uh, according to the press reports, in spite of reluctance by some of the other members, Japan succeeded in making reference to acknowledge the importance of investment in the gas sector. So this is the this is probably the biggest difference uh, that I can find among the members in the uh, in the G7. Would it be fair to see that that's, you know, Japan's focus on the role of natural gas as uh, energy security provider is in part because, you know, it's in this region that is still much more energy hungry than probably many other economies that gathered in Sapporo. I mean, when we look at uh, many of the Asian economies, obviously they, they're, you know, they, they do have their own platforms, whether it's G20 or et cetera, but I think there is quite a bit of a difference in terms of how much of certain resources that the economies can afford. Uh, right at the moment, there's a lot of attention on how to shift away from coal, whether they can go to gas or whether they, you know, sometimes have to wait for renewables. Although renewables are, you know, certainly expanding their roles and you know, I wonder, yeah, if there is to some extent, you know, some unique view that Japan brings to the, you know, a forum such as G7 because of where it's located? Well, um, Jane, that's a very important point. Um, Japan is the only Asian member of the G7 process. And uh, Japan has always considered that one of the most important roles for Japan in the G7 process is to represent the views and situation of Asia. And as you described, uh, the situation concerning energy is very different between Asian countries and North America or uh, Western Europe. One of the biggest differences, as Jane suggested, is that the economic growth is very different. Asia is growing strongly, and their standards of living is still in the process of being enhanced. So if you put a strong economic growth and rising living standards, that will lead to a very substantial increase in the demand for energy. Whereas in many parts of Western Europe in particular, the growth is rather slow, and they have already achieved a very high level of, of, of living standards. So they can reduce the energy consumption. And when you have a, a decrease or reduction in your energy demand, it will be much easier to decarbonize your energy supply. But when you have a substantial increase 
in the energy demand to support the growth and the enhancement of the living standards, um, the decarbonization would be very difficult. While the Asian countries will be pushing for renewable energies, renewable energies by themselves will not be sufficient to supply a, the growing demand for energy. And so energy in Asia would require both, not just the renewable energies, but also the fossil fuel. And in order to reduce uh, CO2, it's not coal, it would be natural gas or LNG. That's one point. And the second difference is that when I talk with my European friends, they also often mention that why not use wind power more? Uh, but um, European countries, especially in the Western Europe, have high latitude. And with high latitude, you typically get stronger wind. But for most part of Asia's, Asia, you don't get such a stable, strong wind. That's problem number one. And then the next question is, what about solar panels? The problem is that solar panels require so much land. In Asia, very densely populated. The land use is very tight. So the installment of solar panels would have to compete with other land use. And in addition, Asia has a very long rainy season, like the monsoon seasons. So in those seasons, uh, there will be no power generation from solar panels. So you would have to have dispatchable power source to offset that drop in the power generation. Additionally, Europe's coal-fired power plants are very old, easy to retire. But for most parts of Asia, the coal-fired power plants are very young. In fact, probably 60% of the coal-fired power plants are less than 10 years old, so they cannot be retired easily. So these differences would lead to a different approach for the energy policy. And I think one point that Japan was stressing, which was probably one of the most important objectives of Japan, was to stress that while there is a common goal, the pathways to reach that common goal should be different according to the unique circumstances that each country faced. This common goal, multiple pathways, is probably the uh, most important message that Japan wanted to send out and to which Japan was successful in the communicate. And it's interesting in, in that, I mean, there is quite a, you know, diversity of resources and also, you know, that, you know, what is the land mass and population density. And, but, and I, I definitely think that it's, you know, important to, you know, recognize different paths, but it, it, it's also challenging to make sure that, you know, then you don't allow some countries just fall behind and, you know, use that as an, ex, you know, sort of an excuse. And I think, it, you know, just also I look at the the communique and I certainly noted that there was, you know, a frequent reference to the global efforts, you know, and in, in many ways, it's G7 needs to show the leadership. And, but then also while recognizing uh, countries have different paths, but then at the same time, the idea is to keep marching forward, you know, trying to really get to uh, net zero and decarbonization. It was really the balancing, just, you know, reading through all these paragraphs that, you know, how to uh, maintain that balance uh, certainly seemed like a, a major task. So Terazawa-san, another uh, things that caught my attention was under the critical minerals related discussions, there was this, you know, call for more in-depth examination under, I think, five-point plan. Uh, would you tell us a little more about 
how that came about and where you think the work will be going? Well, I talked about the uh, the communique was 36 pages long, but in addition to that 36-page document, there were six annexes attached to the communique. And one of the annex was uh, the five-point plan for critical mineral security. And uh, it is important, I believe, that in, this, in addition to highlighting the importance for of critical minerals, a specific annex w- was dedicated to this uh, question of critical mineral security. I think this is the first time that the G7 produced a specific separate annex to cover this issue of critical mineral security. And uh, I think this is very important because many people consider that if we make the energy transition, uh, we'll be free of the energy security problems. And I watched one one comment made by the UK minister uh, making an announcement with the UK's new energy uh, strategy plan. The UK is now free from the concerns of energy security. But this is not true. Well, eventually, after decades, if we succeed in uh, decarbonization, we may be relieved of the energy security concerns arising from the supply of fossil fuels. But the transition to energy security, excuse me, transition, energy transition will lead to massive, massive demand for critical minerals such as lithium and nickel, nickels that would be used for batteries, EVs and solar panels and wind power generation. And so we have to start thinking about this issue. And we, we consider, we talk, we often talk about the uh, concentration of supply of oil and gas from Middle East. But the concentration of supply, especially if we think about the processing of critical minerals, the domination of supply is much more serious than oil and gas. So before it's too late, we have to start addressing this question of how we can enhance the resilience, how can we diversify the sources of critical minerals. And this cannot be done by one country alone, because we are talking about the global supply and demand. Even if one country does its uh, best, you cannot really uh, change the global demand and supply for critical minerals. So this is an excellent example uh, for the need for a collective action. And the, the G7 leaders would be in a special uh, position to promote this aspect. The five-point plan calls for uh, the having a forecast for long-term supply and demand, which is essential because People have not really thought about what will be the long-term demand for uh, critical minerals. They talk about the long-term demand for EVs, but not talking about critical minerals. So this this is an important uh, aspect. And the G7 has asked IEA to work on this. And this is very significant because IEA has always, in the past, have focused more on the typical energy, especially oil and gas in the past. But now the G7 is commissioning IEA to uh, expand their coverage to look into the long-term demand and uh, supply for for uh, critical minerals. But point two is develop resource and supply chains responsibility. Responsibility. What it means is that the processing of or the, the uh, extraction of critical minerals have been, in many cases, against the regional environment, and in some cases they do not adhere to the global labor or human rights standards. It is important that in addition to getting the critical minerals, those critical minerals would apply, would 
qualified uh, as consistent with our ESG concerns. But point three is recycle more and share capabilities. It is very important. We should strengthen our recycle efforts so that we, we don't have to keep on consuming uh, critical minerals. Point four is save with innovations. We have to be more efficient in the use of critical minerals to uh, produce the same battery. If we can use less critical minerals, it will be much better for this purpose. And finally, uh, point five was to prepare for supply disruptions. And just as we had SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, for Crude Oil, we need to have our stockpiling and sharing our critical minerals in case of crisis or disruption. And um, we started this 50 years ago with crude oil in response to the first oil crisis, and now uh, facing a potential uh, disruption for critical minerals, it is time for the G7 members to work together to prepare for contingency. So this uh, annex, five-point plan for critical mineral security, is very important, and this is the start point. This is not the conclusion. Just as 50 years ago, countries and leaders succeeded in enhancing the security for crude oil, now it's time to start enhancing the security for critical mineral. So, Teresa, uh, are you suggesting that perhaps the International Energy Agency in Paris may take on sort of a, some sort of a coordinated approach to stockpiling critical minerals and even potentially coordinated use? Well, this five-point plan is not that clear. Uh, as I said, this is just a starting point. I believe this would be very important, and starting with uh, encouraging uh, members of the G7 to stockpile uh, critical minerals so that each country would be prepared against a contingency. But the next step is to have a sort of uh, coordination, a uh, share of critical minerals when one country faces disruption. And maybe the third stage is to have a minimum standard leading to a strategic uh, reserve. But that's down the road. This is only the starting point. But looking at the current energy crisis, relatively speaking, our crude oil problem was less severe than the natural gas or LNG. And one of the major reasons is that following the first oil crisis 50 years ago, countries together with the IEA, well, IEA was created in response to the first oil crisis. We did a great job in enhancing the security for crude oil. The challenge is that one, which was not really reflected in the communique, is that we need to strengthen the uh, security for natural gas and LNG, which is much weaker than crude oil. And also, we have to start preparing for the uh, third uh, issue, which is critical minerals. So in the long term, I would hope uh, a similar development as we experienced in crude oil uh, could take place uh, with the collective action from the G7 to enhance uh, the security for critical minerals. And in the meantime, I also want to see a strengthened enhancement of security for natural gas and LNG as well. But this is something hopefully the leaders would discuss as well. Thank you. No, I really appreciate your giving us uh, both sort of historic context, but then you know, sort of the you know the in the energy landscape, you know where. You know, different fields have had different sort of a journey in terms of uh, supply security. Now, thank you so much for that response.
One of the things I wanted to, a couple of things I, you know, that occurred to me that I really wanted to get a little more of your thought is one, hydrogen. You know, Japan has been um, leader in, you know, uh, promoting hydrogen use. The, I think that was, you know, there was, there's been a lot of discussion in the G7 context. Uh, how did you think that the hydrogen, you know, gain, you know, sort of a policy support or, or sort of a political will, you know, in, enhance will to deploy, uh, in, you know, to help decarbonize uh, harder to abate sectors? I think the uh, important role of hydrogen or ammonia, in particular addressing uh, the hard abate sector, was uh, stressed in the communique, which is an achievement in itself. But probably what was more important in the communique is that in using hydrogen ammonia, the communique made it clear that it would be the intensity of carbon that would uh, be used to determine which hydrogen or ammonia to be used. There have been people who might be arguing the colors of hydrogen ammonia would be the decisive element in choosing uh, which hydrogen ammonia to use. Those people would prefer, strongly prefer green hydrogen, hydrogen produced from renewable energies over uh, blue hydrogen, hydrogen produced from fossil fuel, uh, such as uh, natural gas, and uh, to use CCS technology to take away the CO2. But rather than getting to the discussion about different colors, by focusing on carbon intensity, which is neutral technology as the criteria to determine which hydrogen we're going to use, I think that was a major, major uh, achievement of the G7 ministerial meeting. Secondly, while there was a debate uh, concerning this point, the communicant mentioned and acknowledge that there could be a role for hydrogen and ammonia in reducing the CO2 emission from the thermal power generation. And I, I think this was very important from Japan's point of view, because I, as I described, the Asian countries have a very young fleet of coal-fired power plants. Uh, they cannot retire them early because of commercial reasons and also in order to ensure sufficient supply of power. So while uh, maintaining those uh, young coal-fired power plants, we need to reduce the CO2 emission. And that's where uh, hydrogen and ammonia can be used to reduce CO2 emission. And the fact that this was acknowledged in the communique, well, there were many conditions attached to this, but um, the reference to this was, I think, another major significant uh, achievement of the communique. No, that's definitely one of the, the things where you know I see you know, some difference in of emphasis you know, between, I guess, you know, some of the Asian economies and certainly in Europe. I mean, the, within the United States, you know, we're also, I guess, more looking at the you know, emissions intensities rather than feedstocks, as you say, sort of, you know, uh, sort of color, calling them by colors. And, and, and but it's, yeah, it, it, I definitely thought that it, that was a, one of the, I guess, takeaways from uh, the communique. It's just quickly, I think it's interesting. Like one of the things that are fairly underappreciated about Japan's energy when I chat with, you know, a lot of folks that are, um, you know, that follow a lot of the energy issues, but not particularly familiar with Japan's energy situation is that Japan, I think, has the third largest installed solar power. I think that's often, you know, not known. I think 
China uh, by far is the largest. The United States is number two, and uh, I believe in you know, number three is Japan. But you know, it, there's it's not that there hasn't been interest. It's not that there isn't you know acknowledgement that you know renewables are important. But as you said, I think you know there's a lot of I guess terrain uh, related constraints, also population density. But anyways. Obviously, you know, the Sapporo ministerial meeting happened, and now we're looking at the, the G7 summit. So what are the, the key issues out of Sapporo, key messages that you think uh, will be highlighted uh, when G7 leaders meet in Hiroshima? Well, from the outcome of the um, Sapporo meeting, it is quite clear that the leaders would express their strong sense of urgency about the global warming. They would describe this decade as the critical decade to address the global uh, climate change challenge. And they would probably note that there is a substantial gap between the current trajectory for the NDC, the nationally determined contributions, and um, the, the path necessary to realize the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, temperature increase within reach. And they would urge uh, stronger action uh, among themselves, but in particular to the world. As Jane mentioned, that the global climate issue cannot be resolved by the G7 countries alone. Uh, Much more CO2 is being emitted by the non-G7 members, especially the non-G7 major economies. So the community is stressing that other countries whose commitments or goals are not consistent with the 1.5 degrees path or the 2050 net zero, uh, the G7 leaders would urge them to strengthen uh, their NDCs or their long-term goals. I think that is something that uh, the G7 members, leaders can easily agree upon because it is urging others to do more. And that is, I think, one of the discussions that will be highlighted at the G7 meeting when the leaders meet in Hiroshima. But if we are to ask other countries, especially the emerging and developing countries, we have to recognize and address their concern as well. And this leads us to the question about fossil fuel. The reality is that uh, as of now, More than 80% of the energy globally is provided through fossil fuel. So while we want to decarbonize the energy sector and we want to realize carbon neutrality, it will take quite a long time before we succeed in that. And the transition period would be quite long. And this is especially true for the emerging and especially the developing world. It will take much longer. And especially for the global south, in addition to having a very long transition period, they will be affected much more by the price increase of energy. So to ensure that the global south will not be damaged by continuous energy crisis uh, during the transition period, which will be very important for the people in the global south, it is important to ensure that there will be stability in the energy market uh, throughout the long transition period. And this would require 
that we should avoid a situation in which we may have a shortage of supply capacity for fossil fuel, especially for natural gas and LNG. And this would require steady uh, investment uh, in the gas and other fossil fuel. This is not to prolong or expand the use of fossil fuel, but it is facing the reality that while we make the energy transition and we do decarbonization of the whole energy system, we need to ensure that there will be sufficient supply for fossil fuel to avoid occasional price hikes, which would affect the global south. And one of the weakness of the communique is that uh, compared with the strong urgency about the global warming, there's very little reference made to energy access or energy affordability or the market stability. And Global South is not mentioned that often in the communicator. One of the points that we have to think about is that uh, Prime Minister Modi of India, as the next G20 chair, will be invited to join uh, the G7 leaders meeting in Hiroshima. So certainly, uh, Prime Minister Modi would emphasize the views from the Global South, and I would assume he would stress that the Global South would need to grow and that would require energy. And while they'll be pursuing renewable energies, renewable energies alone will not be sufficient. So they will have to have access to fossil fuel during the transition period. And that would require a market stability and uh, sufficient investment. And this point, I think, was missing in the G7 ministerial meeting. And when the leaders meet with a greater viewpoint, not just in the energy environment, and not just among the G7 countries, but looking at the world globally, I think this is a point that the leaders would have to discuss. And I don't think these two objectives of realizing decarbonization, realizing carbon neutrality, and ensuring growth and market stability for the global south, I don't think these two uh, should be contradicting each other. We should find a path to realize those two legitimate and important goals. And these are the great responsibility for the leaders of the G7. I'm so glad that you actually brought up the, the global South issue. I, I cannot agree more with you. And as you said, I think the journey for energy transition for global South countries are you know likely to be longer. In Hiroshima, I think the context is a lot larger. And obviously, my understanding is that uh, foreign ministers meeting the summit also, or not summit, sorry, the foreign ministers me uh, meeting also in Karuizawa also, you know, talked about some of the energy uh, related issues, uh, resource uh, concerns, etc. So it's in this bigger context that I, I really do hope that G7 leaders will be able to uh, show stronger, not just not resolve, certainly, but then also signal to of the, the direction and commitment we have in engaging many of the countries that may that may not have as much resources. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your insights. Thanks to Mr. Terazawa and Jane for breaking down the important takeaways from the minister's meeting on climate, energy, and environment, and for highlighting what to watch at the upcoming G7 meeting. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. 
for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>